Is this, yep, okay, there we go. Oh, that's a lot better. All right. Well, I'm glad to be back up here again. Uh, I'm still a little nervous. It doesn't matter that I've done this before. Um, but I'm excited. Um, and I'm, partially I'm excited because um, Psalm 130 has been a psalm that, since college, has been really impactful in my life. It's really a powerful psalm. So I'm excited because I want to share that with you. So uh, to start, have you ever been in a situation when you didn't know what to say? Uh, This happens to me a lot more than I want to admit. Uh, You can ask Aaron. Maybe someone just said something really awkward or embarrassing or you're just shocked at what someone just said. Or maybe you just freeze up and you don't remember what you were going to say. Or maybe... Like me, you just weren't really paying attention in the first place. And so you don't know what to say because you don't know what was being talked about. No matter what the situation is, we can have that moment where we just don't know what to say. And sometimes we can be in that kind of a situation in our relationship with God. Um, Sometimes it's a good thing, though. Sometimes we're so overwhelmed with God's goodness or joy, an answered prayer request, something that we've been waiting on that we just we don't even know how to respond. We can't we can't express it in words. But more often it's when we're overwhelmed with pain or with grief or we're overwhelmed with our own sin and we feel defeated, dirty, unworthy. We don't want to put things into words to God. We do not want to talk to God. Well, today I want to talk about what we can do when we don't have the words to pray, when we don't have our own words. Um, And Psalm 130 is going to help us with that. Um, And so first we're going to look at the the broader biblical and historical context of the psalm to set the scene. And then we'll go through the psalm uh, section by section. And then we'll end with some application points. So uh, let's get started. So um, if you look in your Bibles... um, and, and this is a psalm, so it's Hebrew poetry, so like it, the structure of the psalm is really laid out for you. So I'm going to be like pointing towards things, so it'll be really helpful to like have it open and be looking at it. But the first thing I want to point out is at the top, and I read it when I read the psalm, it says, a song of a sense. And I don't remember when I realized this in my Christian journey, but that is not like something that the translators put in. That is there in the Hebrew. That is as inspired as the rest of the psalm. So it is a song of ascents, and that section of psalms starts in Psalm 120, and it goes all the way to Psalm 134. Um, and as I was reading through commentaries about this, scholars think it, these this section of psalms, these psalms were used, yes, in temple worship, but maybe specifically in one or both of these situations. Some scholars were leaning towards, hey, these psalms used to be recited, sung, prayed, as people used to go on pilgrimages to the temple. So, you know, in the Old Testament, God commanded his people to go to Jerusalem, um, and not everyone lived in Jerusalem, so they would make pilgrimages so some scholars were saying, hey, they used to recite the, this section of psalms on their journey. And other scholars were saying um, that the priests used to recite these psalms as they would walk up the temple steps in preparation for their sacrifices. The good news is it doesn't really matter 
which one or both they were using this for. We know that they were using it, and ultimately, what were both sets of people going to do? They were going to the temple to make sacrifices for the forgiveness of their sins. And that purpose, that usage of the psalm, is really helpful to keep in mind as we, as we go through the psalm uh, itself. Um, additionally, when I was reading the commentaries, there's different types of psalms. You know, there's psalms of praise and thanksgiving. Uh, there's psalms that ask for deliverance. This is categorized as a psalm of lament. Uh, and, and in this case, the lament... Uh, is, is lamenting of your own sin and lamenting of the struggle uh, that the psalmist is, is going through. And throughout church history, this psalm has been used that way as well. Um, it's been grouped with other psalms. I think of Psalm 51 as the primary example. Uh, you know, wash me white as snow uh, that a lot of us are familiar with. But it's been used in a collection to encourage people to repent of their sins and to seek God's forgiveness. So that's, let's keep that in mind as we go through here. That is how this psalm has been used, um, and it can be that for us today. It can be that powerful reminder of God's forgiveness. So now that we've looked at the background, let's actually dig into the psalm itself. Um, I am going to reread it, and it says this, A song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Again, since this is Hebrew poetry, lots of words are repeated in here, and we're going to point that out. The repetition is our way of knowing this is, this is the most important parts of the psalm. This is what God wants us to understand. This is what the psalmist was keying in on. Um, and... But I want to start first. There's this word, um, and it was, really, it was really fascinating looking into this word, and it's the word depths. Uh, we, might, we might talk that way. Like I feel like I'm down in the dumps might be a way we talk about it more. But in the Bible, that word depths, it's, got, it's used throughout the scriptures. So uh, the exact same word for depths is used in Psalm 69, uh, verses 1 and 2, and it goes like this. The psalmist says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come up into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. And as I was thinking about that as well, really the primary scripture that I thought about when I think about this word deep in the Bible was Jonah chapter 2. And... and I'm just going to read verses 1 and 2 for his prayer when he's in the belly of the great fish. And it says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surround me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. 
in the Psalm 130, in Psalm 69, in Jonah chapter 2, there are some differences. Jonah was literally in the depth of the ocean, the depth of the belly of the fish, and nearing the depth of the grave, which is what that word Sheol means. So he was literally in the depth. We don't necessarily know where the psalmist in 69 or 130, we don't know the exact situation. But the thing that unites all of them is that when the word depth and, or deep is being used, it, it's a way of saying that the speaker is far away from God. God is on high and deep is as far away. The person is expressing that they are far away from the face of the Lord. And just like Jonah, the psalmist didn't get there just by tripping and falling. It's sin that leads us into the depths. Remember the story of Jonah. He ended up in the belly of the great fish because he refused to listen to God's call to preach to Nineveh. We don't know what happened to Psalm 130, and in some ways that makes it more helpful for us today. It's a way to see ourselves in this psalm. We don't, different situations lead us to the depth of sin, um, even as Christians. Non-Christians stuck in the depths of our sin, Christians struggling with sin. Just like the psalmist, it doesn't necessarily matter how we got there, but it matters that we recognize that we are there in the depths. So what is the psalmist going to do? What is he going to do? And the first word that gets repeated in verses 1 and 2 is the word voice. There's only one person when we are in that depth, the depth of sin, or even the depths of pain and suffering that we can truly turn to and we know will hear our voice, and that's God. That word voice, it's, if, if you think about it, he says, hear my voice and let your ears be attentive to my voice. He's pleading with God to hear his voice in that place. And that's the kind of place that we're at when we don't have words of our own so often. We, we don't know what to say. We don't know what to pray, or maybe we don't even want to pray. But the good news is that God has given us examples in Scripture, like Jonah. And, and more than just examples, what I want to encourage us with today is God has given us literal words that we can use to pray in those situations. Um, in the 4th century, uh, a church father named Athanasius, he, he was writing a letter to encourage another Christian to read the Bible, and this is what he said. He said, the marvel with the Psalms is that the reader can take them and recite them, not as though someone else were speaking, but as himself speaking of himself, offering the words of God to God as his own heart's utterance, just as though he himself had made them up. So contrary to what people think, the scriptures are not hiding. They're not hiding from the pain of real life and the suffering that's in the fallen world. The book, this book, this Bible, our scriptures, they contain stories of real suffering people and people who struggled with sin. That's like one of the main themes of the whole Old Testament is these people struggling with their sin. And when, but when we are hurting and we're struggling, we can turn back to these words an advantage that they didn't always have, but we have. And we can use these words to pray. 
Another uh, really helpful thing that Athanasius says in this letter, he says, the Psalms are, just, are, are like a mirror. The movements of our soul are reflected in them. And so, as a broader point, this psalm may be about asking for forgiveness and when you're struggling in the depths, but there are other psalms about praise and about thanksgiving. All the different emotions and feelings that we go through in life are reflected in the psalms. And so we can turn to them and use them no matter what the situation is that we have no words with. The thing that, as I was studying this, the thing that really hit me was that God's words can become our words back to God. And what better words to use? When we think about praying, sometimes we think, I don't, I don't know the words. Or you know, maybe we listen to Pastor Kurt pray or Pastor Jeff pray, and I, I can't pray like that. You know, I can't sound like that. It's like, if we were ever worried about what to say back to God, saying his own words back to him, I'd say that's a pretty safe bet. I'd say that's a really great thing to do. And I know that personally, so often when I, when I don't have the words, just reading the Psalms, like this Psalm, have been so beneficial to me. So after the psalmist cries out to God in verses 1 and 2, he, he kind of he turns from his prayer and he almost... Med- starts meditating on his condition, on his condition of sin and being in the depths. And he realizes that if the Lord marks our iniquities, who could stand? So he realizes the gravity of his situation. Not that he's just made some mistakes and had some failures. We all will make mistakes and failures. But that he sinned. He sinned against God and that he can't stand. When I asked Kurt about... Um, the phrase marks our iniquities. He said it's like the idea in the Hebrew is like keeping a ledger, like you're an accountant making the exact marks of all the sins down to the penny. And so it's saying like if God does that down to the penny of our sins, the exact recording, who could stand before him? And really it's a rhetorical question because the psalmist knows just like we do that no one could stand before the holy God. Again, God, God is on high, and we are in the depths. It, it, it's really profound in its simplicity, like the symbolism of the psalm. God is up here, and we are down here. But verse 4 is amazing. That that chasm can be closed because with God there is forgiveness. That is amazing. It's really amazing. That's the thing. That's why I love this psalm. That's why I've come back to it so many times. Because it gives that stark picture of where we're at, but what God does in response to that. Verse 4 continues, though. It does say that that forgiveness has a purpose. It says that you may be feared. God's forgiveness is not something that we should take for granted. So often when we're in that place and then we realize that God's forgiven us and that he still loves us, we can maybe seek to take that for granted, to go, oh, thank, thank the Lord, he's forgiven me, and then move on. But the forgiveness, it's not like I struggled to find an example, and so forgive me if it's slightly irreverent, but it's not like a free sample at Costco that you throw down and go, wow, that was great, and then you move on. God's forgiveness is something that should prompt us, and it it uses the word fear, awe, respect, holiness. 
Like we should be thankful and grateful that God has forgiven us. And that should, that should be the fuel that leads us to be more like him. I feel like a lot of times we, we know we're supposed to be holy. We know we're supposed to be righteous. We know we're supposed to do the right thing. And so we do it out of a sense of duty. And, and there's, there's somewhat of a place for that. But this psalm is reminding us that that, that fear and that obedience to God Ultimately, it's coming from a gratitude out of him forgiving us. And, and that, I mean, that, that encourages me. That makes me realize, yes, I want to follow God because of his great love and forgiveness. So now that he's taken that shortcut to meditate on this and to realize God's grace, he reaffirms his trust in the Lord in verses 5 and 6. And if you take a look... The word wait is used three times, and the word hope is used once. And when I was talking to Kurt about this, if in your translation, it might actually use the word hope three times and the word wait once. It might use the word wait one time and then a totally different word three times. And it's because, I guess in the Hebrew, they're all pretty close to the same thing. So really what it's saying is, when I asked Kurt about it, he's like, look, this is really what the Hebrew is trying to communicate. I, and I want to get this exact, exactly right. Um, okay. Confidence, we're having confidence and trust in the future realization of God's promises. So it, it, it's knowing and believing that God will continue to fulfill his promises in the future. That's what waiting and hoping and trusting in the Lord. And that's what the psalmist is doing. And, and he repeats it, and I almost feel like he's repeating it to encourage himself. You know, like almost like self-talk. Like he's, he is, he's saying it again and again so that he believes it. And sometimes we have to do that. Sometimes, to go back to what we were talking about earlier, sometimes we... When we go to pray and we don't have the words and we don't want to pray, we need to just keep, we keep praying or keep reading the same psalm over and over again, repeating the promises and let God's word do it work, its work. Uh, that's what Jeff prayed earlier is that you know, the, word, the word goes out and it doesn't return void. And so just like the psalmist is repeating, wait for the Lord, wait for the Lord, Re, re, praying again, reading again, waiting for the word to take its effect in our heart. We need that sometimes. And the psalmist is kind of modeling that here for us. And the biggest reason we need that again is because, because we're sinful. That's why we ended up in the depths in the first place. We're fallen. We're fickle. Our emotions change from hour to hour. What we want changes from day to day. God's word is constant. These are the exact same words. They always have been and that they always will be. In the commentaries, they, they, in the section about the Song of Ascents, it was like we found these exact psalms with the exact same wording in the Dead Sea Scrolls. This has always been this way. These words, this is, this, God's word remains constant. And we are the exact opposite of that. And so returning to that and using that to help us pray and help us focus on God, it's, it's like an anchor, you know, an anchor in the storm. 
of life. The second half of verse 6 is a really, it's a, it's a really cool and vivid uh, metaphor. Uh, we do not have watchmen on the wall of New Carlisle, but they used to do that. They used to have city walls. And if you think about what the watchman is, he st- they stood right on the edge of the safety and the civilization of the city. And right on the other side was the chaos and the darkness and the danger of the outside. And they stood there waiting for the morning. And, and like all of us, we know that every day the sun sets and that the sun rises. They knew that the morning was coming. But gosh, it probably felt like a long time some nights. And so more than the watchman for the morning, it's the exact phrase repeated per- twice to, to let us, to, just to kind of help us feel what it would have felt like to be one of them. And we can feel that way in our life when we're struggling with pain, with grief, with some kind of sin, that we just want the morning to come. We know that with God, the morning will come, whether it's in this life or whether we have to wait to eternity for the morning to come. We do know, just like the watchman, that the morning will come and that God's, the future promises of God are sure. But sometimes, just like the psalmist, we, we can take heart that we, we have to wait for it. We have to trust in God in the waiting. So in the final section of the psalm, the psalmist kind of makes a pivot. So, so far he's either been praying, meditating, talking to himself. Either way, you can imagine this as a conversation in a prayer closet with God. But Psalm seven and, or verses 7 and 8 kind of remind us that the psalms were not just private prayers. They were used in corporate worship. And so he actually turns and addresses Israel, all of Israel. And he encourages Israel with the same things that he has just discovered himself through this process. The first, the first part of seven, hope in the Lord. The same thing that he just reminded himself to wait and hope in the Lord. And why? Why? What's the reason he gives for hoping in the Lord? For with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption. The same thing that he came to. And verses 3 and 4. And look at the, to, to me, verse, verse 7 is just, it's an amazing, it's an amazing verse. One of the commentaries, I said something really, that really even deepened it. So if you look at verse 4, it says, but with you there is forgiveness. And then look at 7, but for with the Lord there is steadfast love. Forgiveness is not just something that God does. It's part of who God is. With him, with him, in relationship to him, there is forgiveness. And it's steadfast. And that, you know, steadfast love, despite our sin, despite our struggles, despite being in the depths and in the darkness, God's steadfast love is still there. And then it, it even says plentiful redemption. At least my translation says plentiful. I love that word plentiful. It makes me think of a giant church potluck when there's more than enough food. God's forgiveness. There's more 
than enough. It is plentiful redemption. And that's important to point out because sometimes when we get in that place, in the depths, we can feel like God's forgiveness is not enough for us. That's, that's not true. And, and, and there's two sides to that. The first side is like God loves you way more than that. And the second side of that is, do you really think you're bad enough that Jesus, that God dying on the cross wasn't enough for you? That's kind of, I mean, in some, that's kind of making a bold claim about your sin. You think you're that bad. It's not true. God loves you that much and you cannot be that bad. There is plentiful redemption. Um, and I don't know how many of you have ever read a book or listened to a sermon by this person, but uh, he's been very impactful in my wife and I's life. Tim Keller, who had a church in New York City, passed away um, this past week. And it kind of, I don't know, it, it hit me a little bit harder than I thought it would. Just, you know, you in my young walk, it was like, oh, you know, look, this is an amazing pastor and he'll always be there. And it's like, no, I mean, his books will always be there, you know, Lord willing. But he's gone to be home with the Lord. And one of his most famous quotes, it, it goes like, it starts like this. It says, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And so we have to be able to say that. Like, it, the sin is worse than we think. But we also have to be able to come and say, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And verse 8, it really ends on a high note. Not all psalms end on a high note. I, I don't know if you've read some of them. Some of them are, are not that way, but this psalm ends on what couldn't be a higher note. It, it says, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And so it says he will, not maybe, not probably, but he will redeem Israel from all, not part, not some, not most, but all his iniquities. It's complete and total forgiveness. So if the word plentiful wasn't enough, the psalmist drives it home in verse 8 with the words, will and all. The Lord is powerful enough to take care of every single sin. Taking a step back now, we know that this psalm, like we've discussed, it was written, it was written hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Um, how does that apply to us today? And it was clearly written for Israel. I, I, verse 7 says, O Israel. So it was written for Israel, in Israel, to Israel, hundreds of years ago, to be used in their temple services or their pilgrimages. The good news is that Really, the application to us is even more clear now, this side of the cross, than it was to them. So we read Colossians 1, 13 through 14 earlier, and one of the commentators named Tremper Longman said that this was the perfect verse to go with the psalm in the New Testament. And I'm going to read it again. It says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have forgiveness forgiveness, the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins and redemption that is with God, like the psalm says, only comes through Christ. We know now, like Hebrews 10.4 says, that the blood of goats and rams cannot take away sins. They didn't know that. 
when they would go to the temple, when they would go on their pilgrimages, they were trusting in the forgiving character of their, of their God. They were trusting in his word that what they would do would forgive them. And that trust was not in vain. But they didn't know that ultimately that it was through Christ that the forgiveness would come. That all those things were pointers to come and be fulfilled in Christ. But we know that now. Only Christ's death on the cross can really take away the darkness and the depths of our sins. And another reminder is that even though this psalm is addressed to Israel, in places like Romans 11, Paul makes sure to let us know that that Gentiles, non-Jews, that anyone that has faith in Christ is grafted in to God's people. That through faith in Christ, we are all part of Israel in some sense. Um, And so, so it does. It applies to us. The promises of God's forgiveness remain true to this day, just like it was for them. And the reason that they remain true is because our sin remains true. And it's just a reminder that we shouldn't read a psalm like this and think, wow, that's really great for the people who need to come to know Jesus, that their sins can be totally forgiven. Because even as Christians, in places like Romans 7, we can struggle with our sin. And we don't fear God like we ought to. Even when we have full trust in the forgiveness of sins. And we are truly grabbing hold of the promise of the forgiveness. We don't always that you may be feared. And so this psalm is just as much for Israel as it is for the church. This psalm is just as much as it was. It is is for non-Christians as it is Christians. We all need these powerful reminders. And we all have moments where we don't have words of our own to pray. We can use scriptures like Psalm 130 and Psalm 69 and Jonah chapter 2. When I was studying Jonah chapter 2, and this is just, this is, we don't know this for sure, but the commentator I was listening to said based on the wording, it's possible that, that Jonah didn't utter that prayer until he was, until the third day that he was in the belly of the fish. Then he prayed that prayer and God caused him to be vomited up onto the shore. Three days in a belly of a fish with not knowing what to pray. We can feel that. We can go through seasons like that too. But ultimately, you know, if we are of the Lord, we turn to the Lord and we cry out to him. And, and God has given us a lifeline. That's what this is. That's what the scriptures can be. They can be a lifeline giving us words to say. And and even when we don't want to pray, repeating these words, reading these words ourselves can kind of guide our heart in the right direction. You know, maybe when that rebellion is tugging against your flesh, if you read the words of the scripture, it can soften your heart and lead you back to God. I want to finish that. In closing, I really, I want to finish that Tim Keller quote. Uh, first, and so this quote starts, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, but he finishes it, and he says, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And that's what Psalm 137 and 8 are saying, more than we ever hoped. You might think that, if you hadn't been in church, you might think that 
well, you know, some things maybe somebody will forgive me of, but not all of it. No, this is, we are more accepted, plentiful redemption, all of our iniquities complete as far as the east is from the west, as another psalm says, are our sins removed. And the last thing I want to I end with is, is this story. Um, when I was in college, I was in a particularly difficult situation, and I felt the depths of my sin. And I came to our pastor. And he said that in our sin, in, in our natural sinful state in the flesh, we want to run away from God. That's the natural reaction. Just like Adam and Eve, covering ourselves with the fig leaves. And just like Jonah did. Even though jo- in both cases, unlike us, God had literally spoken to those people. And they still in their flesh. So sometimes we can think that. Like, oh, you know. If God came down in a cloud and talked to me, I wouldn't be that way. I'm not so sure. People didn't listen to Jesus. Jonah didn't listen to God when he spoke to him. Adam and Eve were walking in the garden with God, and they still wanted to run away from him. Sin is powerful. But my pastor said, with the power of the Spirit, what, what we can do is actually instead of running away from God, we can run to God. And so we have to take that natural inclination when we're in the depths of that place and say, no, I will run to God because I know that with God there is forgiveness. I know that with God all of my iniquities will be taken care of. And I try to remember that every time I'm convicted of my sins. That, no, Andrew, run to God. Don't run away from God. Run to him. Talk to him. Pray to him. Just like the psalmist did here. Just like we all can do. Forgiveness and plentiful redemption are with the Lord. And like Pastor Kurt says, if any of this is hitting you and you want to talk, talk to me, talk to Jeff, talk to anybody in the church, please come and talk to us afterwards because the, the forgiveness is not too good to be true. Jesus died on the cross to secure that forgiveness for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the scriptures, for your word that speak to us, that speak truth to us, that remind us of the truth and, and can help us. Help us when we don't have our own words to pray, that we can turn to them, that we can read them and sing them and recite them and whatever we need, that you give us your words, that you are so good, just like a parent who tells a child what to say when, they are, when they've messed up and they've done something wrong against their sibling. You can give us just like a loving parent, you give us words to say. And we thank you. And we thank you for what these words specifically say. That no matter the depths and the darkness of sin that we find ourselves in, that you can hear and you do hear our voice, that you can answer our prayers, and that with you is forgiveness and plentiful redemption from all of our iniquities. Today, as we go from this place, help us to, to rest in your love and in your grace. And may that love And in your grace, encourage us and challenge us to fear you with a healthy fear, a respect, an awe, a desire to be like you and to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.